0: Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash making gay history. That's patreon.com slash making gay history. Or just go to making and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. In the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, I was 10 years old, sound asleep in my bunk at Camp Luema in Sussex, New Jersey. I already knew I was different, but hadn't yet put my finger on exactly why. I was a Lego nut, a big reader, a total loser when it came to team sports, and I struggled to learn how to swim. I had a girlfriend, Eva Newman, who was also 10. We looked so much alike, the same height with thick wavy brown hair and green eyes, that people thought we were twins, which didn't creep me out at all because it never occurred to me that that would be creepy. Maybe because she wasn't that kind of girlfriend. We held hands, played cards, which was about as far as I'd ever wanna go with any girl. On that hot night in June 1969, asleep under a full moon in the New Jersey countryside, I was dreaming of my cat, Tiger Lily, who I missed terribly. That's my story about that night 50 years ago. But while I was safely tucked into bed at Camp Luemma, a rumbling of discontent was about to erupt into something much bigger, 50 miles away in New York City. There are a lot of stories about that momentous night in New York City's Greenwich Village. Stories much closer to the action than mine. Sadly, many of the people with direct experience of what happened around one in the morning on Saturday, June 28th at the Stonewall Inn through that night and the nights that followed have since died. So we've gathered almost a dozen accounts from interviews recorded in the year after the riots, from my archive from the late 1980s, and one from a more recent conversation. There are contradictions and inconsistencies in the accounts. Not everyone agrees, not everyone saw it from the same spot, memories change with time, and they rarely exactly match. But these oral histories, these personal stories, will bring this moment to life through the voices of the people who lived it. A note on language, you're going to hear the terms queen, scare drag, drag queen, and transvestite used a lot. Those words don't mean the same thing as they did back then. In some cases, they've fallen out of usage, in others, they're offensive terms now. But it's the language of the time and the people who were there, and we're here to hear their voices. It's time for me to step back and let Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Morty Manford, Vito Russo, Craig Rodwell, Damian Martin, and Dick Leitch tell you their stories. I spoke with all of them 30 years ago, and they've all since died you'll also hear from Martha Shelley, who is still fighting for social justice on the West Coast, from Randy Wicker, who turned 81 last February, and from Martin Boyce, who met me outside the current Stonewall Inn to tell me about its previous incarnation. My name is Martin Boyce, and I'm a Stonewall veteran. So we walk up to the front of the Stonewall. What was it like? You arrive at the front door. What happens next? Well, you arrive at the front door, and then you wait for them to say, you know,
1: either we're full or... You can't come in because of this or that. That means you just weren't being allowed in. And if that didn't happen, which usually didn't happen, uh, you would just go in. You'd you sign the book.
2: Was it was called the private club, the
1: Stonewall. The Stonewall
3: was an illegal club. It was very mob run. I mean, it was so obviously mob. And they used it as a money drop and all kinds of stuff like that.
1: Right near the door was the table with the mafia guy. I mean, you know, that was pretty. Intimidating. I mean, you know, it was like...
2: First, it was just a gay men's bar, and they didn't allow no uh, women in. And then they start allowing women in, and then they let the drag queens in. I was one of the first drag queens to go to that place.
4: Okay, you could get into the Stonewall if they knew you. And there were only a certain amount of drag queens that were allowed into the Stonewall at that time.
3: It was a slum. I mean, it was a really a slum, scumbag place with the only sleazy crowd. The worst crowd of people you've ever seen in your life.
5: It, it was a very eclectic crowd, uh-huh. uh, which was one of the nice things about it.
2: And then they had these drag queens working there. And there was this uh, Tiffany and all this other drag queen that used to work there in the coat check room. And- this
4: is where I get into arguments with people. They say, oh no, it's always a drag queen bar and it was a black now.
5: The place itself was pretty much of a dive. It was pretty shabby and the glasses weren't particularly clean when they served you a drink and they were watered-down drinks.
3: The Stonewall didn't have any hot water. They washed their glasses in cold water and they were spreading all kinds of diseases from one person to another.
5: But they, they had a few, some lights in the back down on the dance floor area and uh, there was a, a, a jukebox
2: and it was the first place I ever seen go-Go boys because they used to have several go-go boys that used to dance on a bar at that place.
6: and then you went through two swinging doors into a dance floor where people danced. and uh,
5: there was another bar back there and, and tables where people sat, and um, uh, it was just like a you know separate little atmosphere.
1: They really had a culture in there. It was really interesting and meaningful, because here there was a group of gays that, you know, especially those scared drags who are really persecuted, really enjoying themselves as if the world were normal and not worrying that the sun will come up and not worrying about tomorrow in an amazing way. A celebration of surviving another day, living another night,
0: maybe meeting another trick, the Stonewall had opened its doors as a mob-run private club in March 1967, three years after a fire had gutted Bonnie Stonewall Inn. That was the restaurant that had occupied the space for three decades or so. The new owners of the Stonewall, affiliated with the Genovese crime family, slapped black paint on the walls to cover the fire damage, put in a jukebox, and started selling watered-down drinks and bootlegged liquor to a crowd with few other options. Private clubs like the Stonewall were being raided by the cops with increasing frequency. Those raids were usually cleared up pretty fast, with a payoff from mobster bar owners, as Sylvia Rivera explained to me. They
4: would come in, raid a gay bar, padlock the freaking door. The police would leave one way. The mafia was there, cut in the door. They had a new register, they had more money, and they had more booze.
0: On Tuesday, June 24, 1969, Inspector Seymour Pine from the NYPD Public Morals Division raided the Stonewall Inn. The Tuesday night raid went off like so many others. The patrons were escorted out, the bar staff were arrested, and the proceeds were confiscated. According to Stonewall historian David Carter, one of the bar's owners assured Inspector Pine that night that the Stonewall would be back up and running the next day. It was. So Seymour Pine planned another, more consequential raid that would happen a few days later.
6: On June 28, 1969, Thousands of homosexuals rioted in New York's Greenwich Village section. The disorders began with a routine police raid on a homosexual bar, the Stonewall on Christopher Street, in the heart of the West Village, commonly referred to as the gay ghetto of New York.
0: Morty Manford was inside the bar that night.
5: I was inside and I was a patron.
0: He had no idea that two female undercover officers were already mingling with the clientele to scope things out. But he couldn't miss it when Inspector Pine and five other cops came in. According to historian David Carter's exhaustive research, the time was 1.20 a.m.
5: Some very um, officious-looking men in suits and ties entered the place. Whispers went around that the place was being raided. Suddenly, the lights were turned up, the doors were sealed, and all of the patrons were held captive until uh, the police and the federal agents decided what they were going to do.
0: So you were inside?
5: I was inside.
0: And Sylvia Rivera was there that night too, apparently. At
5: that time, I didn't know Sylvia Rivera.
4: I just happened to be there when it all jumped off. The police came in. They came in to get the payoff, as usual. It the same people that used to always come into the Washington Square Bar to, you know, get their pay off. It was,
5: it was a nervous mood that mm-hmm. set over the place. Everybody was anxious, mm-hmm. not knowing whether we were going to be arrested or what was happening next. Mm-hmm. We had to line up and our identification would be checked before we would be freed. People who did not have identification or people who were underage, and uh, transvestites, uh, as a, uh, a whole group, were being detained. And those people uh, who didn't meet their standards were incarcerated uh, temporarily in the courtroom. They were put in the closet. <laughs> but I, they... And that's right. The <laughs> <laughs> little, little did the police know the... Uh, the ironic symbolism of that. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But they found out fast.
4: I don't know if it was the customers or it was the police, it just, everything clicked.
5: As people were, being, were, were released, they didn't run away and they stayed outside, they awaited the release of their friends, some of, of the gays coming out of the bar would take a bow and their friends would cheer when they came out and uh, it, 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 it was a colorful thing.
1: This was one of the things we did. If you were not in a raid, you'd watch the aftermath. It was almost like, you know, celebrating your good luck and seeing so like schadenfreude, I think the Germans say. It was a march of, of gays who had taken their chance by going to a gay bar, you know, and that's the way it was. They got caught and you didn't.
4: When they ushered us out. It was nice, you know, when they just very nicely put you out the door and then you're standing across the street and show in a square park. The
5: tension started to grow and after everybody who was going to be released was released, the prisoners were herded into a paddy wagon parked right on the sidewalk in front of the bar. And um, they were uh, left unguarded by the local police and they simply walked out and and left the paddy wagon to the cheer of the throng.
4: There's a couple of dykes they took out and threw in a car. They got out one side and...
1: But there was trouble between one of the drag queens in the paddy wagon and the cop outside. Well, there's one drag queen that, you know, they brought her out and I don't know what she said. It's just that, um... And she kicked him. I only saw her heel kick him back, but that was enough for him to jump in the back of the car. They just beat her into a bloody pulp. You heard it. You heard the sounds of flesh and bone against metal. And, you know, it was a sound we all knew. We all winced.
0: Craig Rodwell just happened to be passing by the Stonewall with his lover, Fred Sargent, that night. Craig's account comes from an almost 50-year-old tape that we retrieved from the vault of the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division.
7: And we are passing through Sheridan Square, and we noticed this big crowd from the Stonewall. There was a police van up front, and a crowd of about 500 people, I would say. And it was obvious what was going on. We asked people who were the Stonewall and so forth. And I remember I started yelling things like "Get them on the bars or something. Punch and red punched, and shot up.
4: He was like, Sylvia, so don't go off. And I'm like, well, why not? I said, I have to go off. I said, I have to be part of this. I said, I have to. <laughs> the feeling is
1: here. You saw what you want, you fags. Now get the hell out of here. It shows up. And turned around like you always turn around with complete confidence. And we started moving towards him. I mean, nobody looked at each other. Nobody discussed anything. We just started moving towards him.
4: Everybody's looking at each other. But why do we have to keep on constantly putting up with this?
5: Somebody in the crowd started throwing pennies, or some people in the crowd threw pennies across the street.
4: The nickels, the dimes, the pennies. Pennies started being thrown. In the quarters. Flew. Well. Started flying. Why?
0: why? Why that? Why
4: do people do that? The payoff. That? that was the payoff. Oh, 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 oh.
0: That was the payoff. It was to
4: symbolize the payoff. Yeah. You already got?
1: Here's some more. And here's some more. I think that the right. I started in a bunch of places at the same time because there was provocation for everybody along that line. It sort
7: of happened before you knew it. Uh, large objects started to be thrown, uh, bottles, beer cans.
5: One person uh, apparently threw a rock which broke one of the windows on the second floor. And with the shattering of glass, uh, the crowd sort of, ooh. <laughs> It was a, a dramatic gesture of defiance. Mm-hmm.
1: The right was on in my section. On. And everything is going off really fast.
4: I thought it was going off really fast. Daylock, the cops locked themselves in the bar.
7: The police began to see that the crowd was hostile and was mad and didn't madder. So they retreated with, within the stone wall and locked the doors.
0: A policeman had been hit in the face by some sort of flying object, and it drew blood. As the cops beat a hasty retreat into the bar, they grabbed a bystander, musician Dave Van Ronk, and dragged him in too, barricading themselves inside with guns drawn. Inspector Seymour Pine would later say it was more terrifying than any of his combat experiences during the Second World War.
6: On my way home from work, I'm walking West on Christopher Street towards 7th Avenue, and there's this huge thing going on outside the Stonewall.
8: And we see these people who are looking younger, younger than I am, and they're throwing things at cops. And I said, oh, it's a riot. These things happen in New York all the time, you know.
3: (laughs) typical nonchalant New York. Right.
8: We're putting it on. I said, well, Mm -hmm. you know, let's toddle away and Do something else.
5: Uh, And it escalated. Uh, A few more rocks.
7: And it was at that point that two or three people in the crowd got a uh, uh, a parking meter started using it as a battering ram at the door. I mean, it was like medieval, you know, across the moat trying to break the castle doors down.
4: The cops were, you know, they they just panicked. Somebody
5: stuck a gun out.
4: Inspector Pine really panicked, he really did.
5: Somebody uh, from inside the bar opened the door and uh, Iran was reaching out with a gun telling people to stay back.
4: Plus he had no backup.
5: And then withdrew the gun, closed the door, went back inside.
4: He did not expect any of the retaliation that the gay community gave him at that point.
5: And then somebody else or other people took a garbage can, set it on fire, one of those wire mesh sanitation Mm -hmm. uh, department uh, garbage containers and and, and threw the burning garbage into into the premises. The location where uh, this window was that uh, was now uh, uh, set afire was where the coat room was. Burning the closet. Burning the closet. Exactly.
4: I don't know where they got the molotov cocktails, but they ended up showing up. They were thrown through the door and whatnot.
2: I don't know. Somebody set it on fire because you know they they, they said the police set it on fire.
7: Someone squirted lighter fluid inside an opening in the, the window and tried to set it on fire. And it was,
0: fire hose that are coming up from
2: the side. I was uptown, I didn't get downtown till about two o'clock. When I got downtown, the place was already on fire and it was raid already. There was an incident with Marsha Johnson at the Stonewall Riot.
9: There was lots of incidents with Marsha at the Stonewall Riot. Can
2: you, do you recall any of those incidents? The firemen came down the street because they had set the building on fire.
7: And uh, meanwhile, all kinds of bottles were still being thrown more and more chants, more and more vocal,
6: more people were coming around. So by the time I got there, it was basically over. And yet people were still on the sidewalks screaming at who they perceived to be the enemy, who was the owners of the bar. I went across the street to the park, there's that little triangular park, and I sat in a tree. I mean, there was a, a branch. And I watched what was going on, but I didn't want to get involved.
1: Nothing in a riot is more frightening or unnerving than silence. Immediate silence.
5: Those days, New York City police had a guerrilla-prone cadre of their ranks known as the Tactical Police Force.
1: Everybody looked around because it was silent. Why? The TPF. TPF. TPF arrived in large numbers, and you heard this thumping, like goose stepping, and the crowd opened. And there was the tactical police force, armed to the teeth. Yeah, they, they want a confrontation. Shields, and face shields.
2: and police and, and out there with those clubs and things and their helmets on, Ride
10: helmets.
1: Every kind of riot control piece of equipment they could have.
10: And there were reports in the press of Chorus lines of queens kicking up their heels at the cops like rockets. You know, we are the Stonewall girls, and you know, fuck you, police. And we all made this
1: long line of rocket like kicks and singing one of our big ditties we used to always sing when we all got drunk.
10: Were you one of those that got in the chorus lines and kicked their heels up at the police?
1: We are the village girls. We wear our hair and curls. We wear our dungaree above our Nelly knees. And when it comes to boys, we simply hypnotize. But that's when it stopped, because that's when they charged us.
5: The way they then started chasing after people and, I, uh, uh, and hitting people with their billy clubs, I think that may have made it greater than it was.
4: I got knocked a little bit by a couple of plainclothes men. I didn't really get hurt. Uh, I was very careful that night, thank God, you know, I didn't get really hurt, but I saw other things, other people being hurt, and that's like, uh, by the police. It was just like inhumane, unsenseless bullshit.
1: But everywhere I looked, people were agitating. The leaders, the stronger ones, the black queens, Latin queens, the ethnic queens that were butch, and- Queens that had, had enough and lived in worse neighborhoods and suffered enough. Everybody was going crazy.
2: Turning up cars and oh my dear, blocking traffic and screaming and hollering and everything.
7: And they pushed the crowd back on Seventh Avenue. But the crowd just split up, went around the blocks, and just came back at it again, like charging the police. It really was amazing the police were as restrained as they were. And looking back on it, I think it was because they didn't it's a particular embarrassment that the police to not have in the papers next morning they had to use tear gas, any kind of force against a group of homosexuals. And that was the whole turning point in the attitudes of gay people.
3: When did you first hear the chat gay power? Was it that weekend?
7: Uh, I think I was the first one to say it when Fred shut me up. Maybe somebody before it said it. I don't know. It was that night, the first time I heard it you know, from and their personal, from the groups of people, Yeah,
6: And then somebody came along and spray-painted on the front of Stonewall a message to the community to quiet down, that this was our neighborhood and we weren't going to let them take it away from us, and, you know, everybody should calm down and go home.
0: The fighting died down, the sun was coming up, 13 arrests were being processed at the precinct, and Martin Boyce and his friends were spent. All rioted out for the time being, they watched a new day dawn over Greenwich Village. So it's dawn, right? and you're sitting on a stoop across the street where we're standing now. Right. And what did you see as as the sun began to rise?
1: As the sun began to rise, you know, with my head down and tired, I kept looking up, and and I saw this queen was exhausted, bruised a little, I believe, and couldn't go on anymore. It was just on a stoop. Exhausted but at peace because near her was a cop who was also exhausted that made no attempt to bother her. I mean, the riot was really over. Still, the street was glistening. It was one of the most beautiful things I ever saw. The whole street, just like diamonds. But in reality, it was broken glass. The smell of the smoke of burning garbage cans was there. All those smells that a riot make, even a certain kind of sweat. It was Ugly and beautiful, it was something though. All of these bad images were enveloped in a certain kind of beauty that was coincidence and haphazardly, but then so was the riot. So maybe it was a metaphor for that because I don't know. But I did notice it, I did stop and register it and memorialized it. And I remember because the one thing I always said afterwards, even shortly after Stonewall was the end of that night and how
0: that street glistened. The first night of unrest was over, but the uprising had just begun. Martha Shelley had managed to miss the riot. She was the one you heard saying that riots happened all the time in New York City. After toddling off, as she put it, she had hitchhiked from the village to her lover's house in New Jersey, woke up the morning after the raid, and headed back into the city for a Daughters of Belita's meeting.
8: I don't remember what it was. I was part of a running the meeting, and I don't remember what the speech was. Then I found out what happened. From lack of sleep and exhaustion, I was sort of feverish. And I lay on my couch that evening thinking, we've got to got to do something, we got to do something we can not just let this pass. We should have a march.
0: Meanwhile, the police went to the Manishing Society's office to ask, beg, that the riot not continue another night.
3: Anyway, the cops came that day, that Saturday. I came flying up to Madison, help, help, make these people stop. Make them leave us alone. And, uh, well, first of all, they were defensive, you know. We had to do this because, because, because. I said, yes, I understand you had to do because, because, because. That's what you've been doing for all these years. You gotta expect people to get upset sooner or later. You know, you gotta stop sometime. Oh, we'll stop, just please get them off our backs, make everything calm down, na, na, nah. So uh, we didn't know what to do, so we just went down and walked the streets and talked to people.
9: And then on Saturday night, it was, Much the same thing, starting about nine, crowds started to gather in the area, uh, sort of small groups in the sidewalk. And then around 11 or 12, they started taking over the street and stopping cars from coming through, unless there were gay people. uh, A few fires were set. But generally, it was an angry mood, uh, a lot of chanting, a lot of hand-holding, a lot of assertion of, of being gay and that, it was a way of saying we're tired of hiding tired of living two lives tired of denying our basic identity denying ourselves
6: uh, the newfound pride really a collective pride in their identity for the next two or three nights there were constant confrontations um the police would come along and sweep the area the second night i for some
3: reason had to go up sixth avenue in a cab and i passed by Right there, where the old women's house of detention used to be, and they had police lines up, and they were keeping the crowds back. And there were these gay and lesbian people chanting, and, and the main thing I remember about it was the look on the cops' faces—that they had that look that you sometimes see with someone who has a trusted pet who suddenly just bit them. There's that astonishment and fear at the same time. That is, you know, not like terror or anything, but just. Uh, Astonishment is a large part of it, and, and I got a great pleasure out of the look
2: on their faces. What did you
0: say
2: to the police? We just were saying no more police brutality, and we had enough of uh, police harassment in the village and other places. Oh, there was a lot of little chants we used to do in those days.
9: On those later nights, there was a lot more people, mm-hmm. and we took over the whole area and closed down the streets. The third or fourth night, I don't remember which night, it was right up here at the corner of Greenwich and uh, Christopher. And anyway, I was up at this corner, and uh, Marsha had climbed to the top of the light pole. I don't remember specifically whether it was Platform Heels that night or Joan Crawford Fuck Me Shoes or what, you know. Anyway, it was a cop car pulled in and parked on uh, Greenwich Avenue, sort of right under where the uh, light pole is, and Marsha just threw the <laughs> thing right through the windshield of the cop car. And, uh, and I was only a few feet away. And I remember the cops, and they knew it came from up there, you know. They didn't care. They just opened the, uh, the back door and just grabbed the nearest faggot, pulled him in, and then the other started driving. You could see him just beating with a nightstick,
6: you know. By the end of the week, scores of police and rioters had been injured. Many were arrested, and one man, a cab driver, was dead.
0: That cab driver was driving down Christopher Street when rioters blocked his way and rocked the cab. He died later in the hospital of an apparent heart attack. His was the only fatality related to the riots.
6: Almost every homosexual who was in New York at the time of the Stonewall Rebellion has his own private memory of what took place. We would sit on a stoop on Christopher Street and wait for them to come and move us along. And then we would go around the block to where Julius's is and come back and sit down again until they came and moved us again. And this got to be like a two or three day game. People were like setting fires in waste paper baskets on Sheridan Square and chanting and screaming.
0: You were primarily an observer?
6: Yes. Yes, I had no connection or knowledge that there was, in fact, the beginnings of an activist movement going on right around that issue.
0: Maybe Vito Russo didn't know an activist movement was springing out of the uprising. But as the dust settled and June gave way to July, organizers called meetings almost immediately.
8: And I went to Gene Powers and said, we should have a march. Jean said, well, if Mattachine Society agrees, we'll co-sponsor it. Mattachine was having a town hall meeting. Town hall, it turns out, was this building that held about 400 people. They
10: asked me to speak at the Electric Circus. It was a big disco in East Village. This was, after the riot. this was during the riot or right at the time of the riot.
8: And there were all these gays that showed up at the meeting to talk about what was going on. You showed up as well. Yeah. With the proposal that we hold a jointly sponsored march.
10: I got up and said, I didn't think the way to win public acceptance was to go out and form chorus lines a drag queens kick, kicking your feet up at the police.
8: And Dick Leitch, who was the head of Mattachine, wasn't really into it.
10: I was just beginning to speak, and one of the bouncers at the electric circus found out that it was a gay thing, that the guy up there talking was gay, and somebody standing next to him, he said to them, are you one of them? And the guy said yes, and he began beating the hell out of him, and this riot broke out in the electric circus.
8: When he asked for a vote how many people were in favor of holding a march, every hand went up.
10: The kid was only about 21 or 22 years old, and he said, all I know is that I've been in this movement for three days and I've been beaten up three times.
8: So he said, okay, if people want to run a march, you know, march committee meets over there.
0: Next week, we'll bring you the story of that march and the first Christopher Street Liberation Day march which was held to mark the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall uprising. If not for that anniversary march, which was the culmination of intensive organizing that the riots inspired, Stonewall might very well have been lost to history. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible, executive producer Sarah Burningham, producer Josh Gwynn, assistant producer Mo Laborde, administrative and special projects manager Ingev Detaya, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Ray Kantrowitz, photo editor Michael Green, and our social media team, Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Daniel Lorenzo. Thanks also to our intrepid researchers, Brian Faree and Brian DeShazer. Special thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media, with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division, the One Archives of the USC Libraries, and the Pacifica Radio Archive. Season 5 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, Irwin and Andrew Press, and a special thank you to everyone at Stonewall Kickball in Washington, D.C. for your generous donation. Stay in touch with Making Gay History by signing up for our newsletter at makinggayhistory.com. Our website is also where you'll find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. So long. Until next time.